Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to the Story Blender. This week's episode comes to you from the Story Vault, our collection of past interviews. We're excited to share it with you and we hope you enjoy it. the Story Blender. I'm Stephen James, and this is the place where great storytellers share the secrets of great storytelling. And today's guest is an Australian actor, screenwriter, and director, and producer who lives in Los Angeles and has worked in the film industry in America and Australia for nearly two decades. Paul Layden is an actor uh, whose work is, includes many lead roles in miniseries and television in both countries, including Tribe, Beastmaster, Canal Road, Farscape, Law & Order, SVU, and Cleaners. As a screenwriter, he co-wrote the Joel Silver Dark Castle-produced film titled The Factory. Paul also wrote and directed the short film Bye Bye Sally, based on a short story by horror writer Lisa Minetti, and the indie suburban thriller feature Come Back to Me. It was released through Freestyle and ended up on quite a few top horror film lists of 2014. With numerous other projects in development and production, I thought it would be great to chat with Paul about his approach to storytelling on the big and the small screen. So, Paul, thanks for joining me today. Pleasure. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. So I first became aware of your work when I saw the movie come back to me a couple of years ago. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I had so much fun with that movie. I, I I suppose I should issue a quick spoiler alert in case we do talk about things. But people should have seen it by now already. It's been out for a couple of years. Yeah. Uh, look, if you have, yeah, it, was, it came out. had a really nice little life when it came out. It was such a small film. Um, and it ended up on Netflix for quite a few years, to be quite honest, about two and a half. I think only recently it just came off Netflix. You know, they do their kind of sure. turn around and out with the old, in with the new. Um, but, yeah, and I'd had a really nice little life. I think that I might have seen it on Netflix. Someone had recommended it to me, and um, I've used it. I think I mentioned this to you before when you've chatted on the phone, but I've used it in my some of my seminars as an example of great twists at the end of stories. Yeah. I know. When you, when you told me that, I was, I was very chuffed. I was very honored. I mean, <laughs> again, you know, this, this is to give you a little tiny backstory on that, <clears throat> excuse me, on that film. It was one of those things I had, like it was based on a book um, by an author called Rath James White. I'd never met him. You know, I'm a massive trowler. I don't know if that's a word. Um, of Amazon, and I get on Amazon and I look at books and I'm and I books that I like. I look at the recommendations and look, you know, as a writer and a and a sort of a uh, I love sort of obviously in this industry too. They love IP and all that sort of stuff. And if 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 it's based on a book, you kind of instantly instantly get some kind of street cred. Um, but I was looking at you know sort of tiny books because the bigger books are always going to be snatched up by the big production companies and the big sure. studios and that sort of thing. So um, I found this book and I loved it. I was intrigued by the premise. Uh, I read the book and it's it's pretty brutal. Um, it's one of those books that I, I had I didn't know what this term was when it, when I first read it. it was called fiction. 
which is six fiction. So that kind of sums up where you think this, this book goes in a lot of ways and how it's described and all that sort of thing. Um, but there was always this great premise, like this almost Hitchcockian kind of vibe and premise in there somewhere. And so once I adapted the book and sort of took all the, you know, made it a little bit more psychological thriller as opposed to that, uh, you know, the sort of more blatant uh, sort of gore fest that it could have descended into. Yeah. Um, you know, the script, because my, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm rep by CAA, a great agency, and they loved it. And they're like, whoa, we just don't know what to do with it. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I know. It's a bit of a risk for whoever really wants to potentially take this on in finance. And then my producer, who I'd worked with quite a few times, just calls me out of the blue and says, look, I just had the funniest meeting, well, not funny, a strange meeting with a, with a woman from Turkey. And she'd come into L.A. to shoot a small film. Something happened with that film. It all fell apart. But she had come into the country, I don't know, with, a, with, a, with, with $300,000 to spend on a movie. <laughs> and I don't know whether the money was in a bag. It was if we're like, have you come in? Is the money in a suitcase? Do we literally need to spend that on a movie? Or like, maybe we're better off just going to Vegas and putting it on black, and then she can make more money and leave the country happy. Um, so my, my producer Anne was like, "Do you have anything that's sort of a, a horror thriller that could be, you know, the contained environments that could be shot?" I'm like, listen, Anne, three hundred thousand. That's not a. That's not a lot of money to shoot. Right. I contained. I contained anything. But I'm like, look, have a read of this. It's bigger than that, but I. I think I could probably do a pass to to limit it. So this producer read about you know twenty scripts that agencies had sent her, and she loved mine. And she's like, let's do it. I'm like, great. So you know, like, let's you know prep for a month. No, 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 no. We're, we're shooting in in ten days. <laughs> so, then, so then we had to go about shooting. I was like, all right, I'm always up for the challenge. Uh, okay, this is insane, but let's shoot in 10 days. All right. So we had to, you know, location scout in Santa Clarita. It's all sort of a suburban thing. So these, we wanted this kind of, I wanted those sort of Mc, kind of odd McMansions in, in, in a cul-de-sac where housed. So we ended up taking over this whole, whole street. It was really quite, they were really quite amazing, these, this, this, uh, this kind of community, how they embrace this dark. I don't think they read the script. If they did, they probably wouldn't have read it. I think, I, I think the ghost of what we shot there is still haunting their houses and depreciated the value. But um, so yeah, we ended up shooting there in. Oh God, we prepped. We prepped in. Prepped in ten days, and there's visual effects in this, and there's like, there's a lot going on. Like it, it was not a. And you know, as they say, don't use, don't use kids, animals. Um, all that I used everything. We had rabbits <laughs> in it. We had dogs doing stunts. Uh, we had so anyway. So yeah, we shot it in about twelve days. We we went to Vegas because it's all set in Nevada. So we said we we ended up shooting two days in Vegas, just like guerrilla style, stealing shots out the front of casinos. In fact, there's this, there's a shot in it where at one point the, the the lead character pulls into a casino, and you know you were shooting out through the windscreen. And there's a valet walking toward her as if he's coming to, you know, take her out of the car. And sure. that was that was a guy that's coming to basically we had to turn the camera off because he's like, if you pull in here one more time, I'm calling the police. So, uh, <laughs> he, he ends up he ends up with an uncredited little cameo in the movie as our valet. Uh, but look, yeah, that that film is is uh, look. Would I make that film today? I 
don't think so. I don't think anyone would remake the, you know, make the films that they've made in the past because you always learn from them. Um, but I think that film for, for how it was pulled together had a really amazing life. And, and some of the reviews it got was, you know, again, like kind of likening it to this Hitchcockian experience. And, and there was others that absolutely loathed it as, you know, even, even massive directors like Spielberg have movies that people love and hate. So that's going to happen in the, in the, in the, in this sort of creative business. But I, yeah, I'm really proud of that little thing. And the fact that when you called me up and said, Oh, we're using this as twist endings. Cause even people that hate the film love the twist ending. So <laughs> I think, I think that was a, that was a nice takeaway from it all. Paul, I remember when I was, I was watching this film, I was like, uh, I, just to tell people a little bit about it. There's a character who has the gift to be able to um, resurrect people. And, um, and so that leads to all sorts of um, intrigue as the story goes on. And at the very end, there's a scene where I thought, oh, they're, they're not going to go there. They're not going to go there. And it's not, <laughs> it's not a gore fest like you mentioned, but it's just this final little plummet. Um, a, a dramatic twist at the very end that I thought that's brilliant. It really it was believable and uh, and so I uh, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it quite I, a bit. And I love that concept. You know, I like again in looking at these 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 books and you know a lot of <clears throat> I like high concept stuff that is always sort of grounded. And um, you know, this was a I always wanted to do this as a very grounded suburban innocuous little suburban drama thriller that there's something odd going on and look i think with this yes the there's this sort of this kid who has grown up with this twisted like didn't didn't know he had this ability until his own mother uh was at the hands of his abusive father died and he he sort of you know during the movie actually says i just I just breathed into your mouth like I saw they do in the movies. You know, he's this mm-hmm. innocent, naive kid. And it just so happened that it brought her back to life and that all her wounds healed. And so he discovers that literally he has the gift of life. So, you know, which is obviously a Christ-like gift. That's how it's, you know, traditionally yeah. seen is, you know, you know, Jesus had the ability to, to bring people back, you know, Lazarus and all that. So what if you gave this gift and if, what if this kid at the age of sort of a uh, child or 10 or whatever discovers they can do that they don't have the the knowledge or the sort of the the life experience to use it potentially for good they they're gonna it's like a superhero power they're gonna go and mess with it and so it kind of defined this child growing up and and not in all the right ways yeah. So it no, sort of it put this kid into a sort of a state of arrested development in some ways, and he used it for ill, and um, that's how, in the end, he you know became a socially awkward character. That then you discover that's how he courts girls. He yeah. <laughs> twisted, but breaks into their house, and he you know. And the thing is, you know, when once he kills someone and brings them back, they have no knowledge of actually what's happened. So then there is that sort of, you know, game that the, the, you know, the main girl has to play is what is happening to me? What is literally, what is, why am I going to falling asleep here and waking up in a different part of the house? Why does right. my house smell like 
why does my house smell like cleaning products? <laughs> because because this twisted individual is killing you and cleaning up afterwards and then escaping out the door after he brings you back. So, like, it's a twisted, weird idea, but grounding it in a suburban level kind of, I think, helped it work in some way. And again, if I had more money, it would have even been, you know, sort of, you can dive a little bit deeper into the, to the, but I just didn't have the time to to shoot some of those scenes that I sure. really wanted to do. And, um, but yeah, yeah, it's, it's still being used by a great writer in a lecture. So that, that works. <laughs> <laughs> so how, when you're uh, crafting a project, how do you actually go about creating moments of tension or fear? I, I, I have a soft spot for some of these indie scary movies or, you know, the smaller budget ones. And I feel like because they maybe don't have all the money for a huge amount of special effects and things like that, that it really comes down to a lot of writing and acting. And, um, and I'm, I'm just intrigued by how you create, you know, tension um, yeah. a, as you shape your stories. Look, I think one of those things is money doesn't – Money doesn't uh, equal quality. Right. I think that's been that's been proven over and over again, and I think it's proven every single weekend at the at the multiplex. Um, you know, just because you have 150 million dollars to shoot a movie doesn't doesn't mean that it's going to be 150 million dollars worth of amazingness. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm a as I love watching as I love reading smaller books that come out on Amazon. I love I love watching smaller films that either get released at the movies or don't or you know that you give your sort of 5.99 to that you watch on itunes and because they're not that's their release and that's some of the the better films that i see coming out these days they just don't have the marketing budget for the big push to the you know 200 plus cinema screens that it needs to go to yeah but these as you getting back to your question that just because you've got a lot of money doesn't mean you can create it comes always down to the story yeah. And it comes down to sort of, you know, in crafting those moments, I mean, I'm just, you know, using something like A Quiet Place, which came out last weekend, um, to sort of a great fanfare, and, and, and I'm glad that movie did really well. But that is sort of a great example of crafting tension, and it does it without words, predominantly. I mean, as the title kind of says. Sure. You know, it does it in a way that you, you, you know the threat, um, it's, you know, there's the, the old uh, Hitchcockian thing. If you know there's a, what is it? If you know there's a bomb under the table, the audience does, then it's, what is it, suspense? I'm going to get I'm get this one wrong. Yeah, no, I think uh, you're right. I think, yeah, it's suspense and um, very often you, showing, if, yeah. Yeah, it's like if you know, if the audience knows something that the main characters don't, that's a really, that's an incredibly tense place to... I, I like to write and never let my audience get too far ahead of my characters. Yeah. I think the best journeys, the best journeys are often when you're on the same journey. Um, you know, and sometimes in writing a script or a pilot, I often, I have the, I have the outline, not the outline. I completely don't have that. I don't outline at all. I have the, the concepts. I do my research of the world. I know my characters back to front. And I know my beginning, I know my teaser, or in a movie, I know my cold open. And then I know my ending. I know how I want to end either the pilot or I know how the film ends. Everything in the middle, often I have a midpoint, but I don't know much else. 
because I think I love the characters to dictate my journey through that. And I think if I often don't know where I'm going and I'm surprising myself, then that's what you're also doing to an audience. And I think that's where you can create a lot of tension because especially in these films, you're kind of <laughs> somewhat tense in, in writing them. You know, I feel like, you know, I feel, I, I feel tense because I'm like, oh, God, like I literally don't know whether the, the literal or the metaphorical monster is around that corner yeah. because I haven't, I haven't plotted this. You know, I don't, I don't know whether this is the reveal of that or – and then you sort of get to the end of that scene. And I'm like, oh, God, no, I, I, I think I can sustain this tension for another couple of scenes and not see the literal or the metaphorical monster. And I think the more you can sort of keep the, you know, when you blow up a balloon and you sort of let it out, the more you can just hold the air in the balloon to bursting point. And then when it does, when you do let it out, you don't pop it because you kind of then, you you, you know, you popped it. You're, there's nothing left. You're done. Yeah. But the more you sort of blow that balloon up and you're like, oh, no, is it going to pop? Oh, no, I think I can breathe into it one more time. <laughs> And you see the latex stretching, and you're like, this is going to pop in my face, and it might hurt. But you just keep pushing it and keep pushing it and keep pushing it, and then you just let a little bit of the air out, you know? A little, little – I mean, maybe this is a bit of a random yeah, metaphor. No, I think that – that's, yeah. I think that's kind of how I like to write and how I like to, to sort of approach things is if I plot it too much, I don't think it's going to be as tense as if, it, if I don't know what I'm go, doing. And if I, if I can keep pushing it and pushing it and pushing it and pushing it, then the audience is going to go, oh, God, I need release. I need release. I need release. Stop it. Stop it. Um, so, yeah, yeah. I, um, I like that. And I actually write very similar to that. I never know where a book's going to go um, when I start it. I never exactly know the ending. When, and I feel the same way that if I'm not surprised, readers – and and you know audiences for films they're very astute these days they've it they've seen all not. the gimmicks and tricks yeah. and it's like you know so yep. if, if i'm not surprised then they probably won't be either so look the audience not only not only the audience is just absolutely film savvy um they're they're savvy to they're savvy to the structure of film you know yeah. they're they're savvy to the three act structure whether they can sit down and write a script no, not a, you know that that requires a certain amount of 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 certain different kind of knowledge and precision and all that, but their brains are wired to knowing how it works. So when you go and see a film, you know that it's really hard to have your lead role be, feel very their life feel threatened when you know that oh well they're the lead role. Yeah, I mean it's. It's Chris Pratt. I mean, they're not going to kill him off at the end of the first act. So it's a lot of fake and false um, in these journeys, you know, even like Liam Neeson in Taken. If he's ever in, in um, threat, it's a lot of false threat. We know we're never, we're never scared for those characters. I think that's the real trick is if you can really feel like your, your hero is placed in a position of, of real peril, yeah. that you, the audience can go, Wait a second. Are they literally going to kill Liam Neeson in, in, in 20, 20 minutes into Taken Fifteen? Are they going to do that? I mean, Taken Fifteen—they they probably would want to kill him because he's fifty years old. But it's, but it, you know what I mean. So I think that the, the audiences are so savvy. So they're going to go whether they even film, and they're not thinking that there's going to be a twist. 
then you kind of got them. But if they're sitting there going, oh, I know, I know where this is going to go. Uh, this is the, I, I got this twist already. And half the time, not half the time, I would say even more than that. They do. They get it. They, they've already guessed it. Um, and, you know, you've got now such a culture of, like, Westworld where you've got every single blogger and every single person involved in that has a theory about whether they're trying to tell the story before the story's been told. Yeah. Uh, and everyone wants to go, ah, oh, see, I got it. My theory was right. Um, so we're in, we're in a wholly different, you know, culture of writing now where you're, you're competing with really great savvy audiences. So you've either got to embrace that and try to outwit them, or you've got to embrace that and go, look, we're in this journey together and I hope I surprise you, but I hope I don't turn you off and bore you at the same time. Yeah, you mentioned this movie, A Quiet Place, and uh, when I was watching it, I really didn't know where it was going to go. I couldn't figure out exactly what was going to happen or if the characters were going to survive or not, and they took me by surprise, but I really I, I enjoyed the journey. I thought it was you know, well-crafted little I think, story. I think that's, that's, a one of the, that's a great example of um, just let the – let's just let, – let's grab our audience, pick them up, drop them into this world – and let's see what happens over the next, I don't know how long that, that movie set over, I guess, a period of, oh, no, I guess it's set over a period of quite a long time. But, um, but you know, you're picking them up and you're dropping them into this world and you're just not going to spoon feed them. Yeah. You know, you're going to go, uh, the, 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 the movie opens and the first title that comes up is Day 89. You know, yeah, audiences yeah. don't need to go, wait a second, hold up, Day 89 of what? I need to know what day 89 is. What's happened day one to 88? <laughs> yeah. Uh, tell me about this apocalypse that uh, my characters are involved in. We don't need to know that anymore. We've had enough zombie movies. We've had enough post-apocalyptic movies. We've had enough movies where there's been some plague or something that's wiped out everyone or some alien invasion. We're like, okay, cool. I like it. Day 89. Ah, there's not many people around. Oh, the supermarkets have been ravaged. Clearly, whatever has created this, this is why these people are living like that. Yeah. I love that. I hate yeah. exposition. And so if you can sort of dump these people in this and go, come along on this very tense journey and not make any sound with us, uh, you're going to really have a good time in the cinema and you'll get your $15 worth. Yeah, I am. Um, I agree. I think that, you know, there's a lot of trust that has to be built up and, and promises. Like when I think about storytelling, I think of the novels that I write. A lot of the opening is, is promises. Some are implicit, some are explicit. But, you know, if you start a story with, um, let's say the woman comes home and she has an idyllic marriage and, you know, her husband is waiting at the door and he says, I've run a bath for you and I have some hot tea and, I thought I could rub your feet, you know, while you watch Steel Magnolias or something like that. <laughs> you know, I thought that was like, interesting. Wow, <laughs> you know. And, but the more like uh, the more idyllic that we make it, or whatever, everything that she wants, he provides. Audiences know. Oh wait, something. This is not going to last. Yeah. This is. Mm-hmm. He's going to leave her. He's going to have an affair. Or he's going to die. Or he's going to get ripped apart at the seams. And so, mm. I, I think what you mentioned is so true that um, our audiences, our readers, they really, you know, they've seen all this stuff before. And even if they can't define this act or that act, you know, where it starts or begins, that they understand promise making. 
And, Absolutely. Uh, and, and that's those. exactly, exactly. That's it. The promise, as they say, the promise of the premise. And I, and I, and I think that's what, I think that lets down a lot of studio films. I think it lets down a lot of television shows. I mean, I'm guessing, you know, I, I, the, 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 like a lost, you know, I, I didn't watch that show. I mean, firstly, this is going back to my acting days. Uh, it was between that I was up for a role in that and another show and I took the other show. That other show got cancelled after 13 episodes. The loss ran for seven years. Yeah. <laughs> I, I might not be talking to you right now because I'll be some sort of uh, actor living the life of Riley in a, in a Malibu mansion. <laughs> but, but I only watched, you know, like a loss for a little bit. But again, I, what I read was there's, there's this, great, this incredible um, promise. You know, there's this great, sorry, there's this great premise that we're going to pay off, but that was never paid off. There's so many films. It's like, wow. I love where this opens. It's the classic, I know, uh, you know, two acts are great. The third act is like popping the balloon and sort of letting it out slowly and seeing how it like plays out in a great way. And that really, 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 really bugs the hell out of me is, is yes, we all as writers, I mean, we've got amazing ideas. We've got great setups, but until you can work out the end, um, or at least not, you don't have to know the end, but you at least go, oh, okay, if I can get to there, I will be able to figure that out and, and pay off my premise. Yeah, that's um, it. the payoff and I, is so huge. The, I read, so I get brought in on, you know, to potentially rewrite sort of stuff, and, and I'm like, oh, God, this is not a rewrite. This is me recreating an entire script based on a tiny little premise because – you know, it's a page one rewrite because it, it falls apart here or there and there. And it's like, oh, well, it's 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 too frustrating to come in. It's not a polish anymore. It's it's uh, it's an original script at that point. Um, and that's the you know that's the again in reading books. I you know I read a lot and I go, oh wow, I'm really into this premise. This is great. And then thirty pages, well, this it's holding. And then all of a sudden the ball drops. And then you go, wait, wait, wait. Maybe that was just a little. Uh, you know, aberration. Maybe they're going to pick it up, and no, that's it. It's almost like running out of steam. Yeah. And it's happened to me. You know, you can run out of steam. You can just run out of, or realize if you run out of steam, then I think that's the premise was never strong enough. Hmm. Yeah, I was thinking about uh, you know this idea of believability. Sometimes when I talk about stories, I kind of talk about. I guess. It sort of sounds a little strange, but these narrative forces that press in on the story, like if we were, if we had a ball of clay and we were all pressing in on it, one might be escalation, another's believability, another's tension or dialogue. And anyway, so we all press in, and and the pressure of one of these forces affects everything else. And mm-hmm. I think one of the hugest ones is really believability. That when that's lost. Uh, it doesn't matter how interesting your character is or how intriguing your plot or your premise. If we don't buy it, we're, we're done with the story. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think we live, we live in such a high-concept world. I mean, everything. You know, I'm like, you know, I've, I've sold three TV shows in the last uh, year. And two, one is a fairly high con- – one is – quite high concept but it's grounded in a it's all set in an arizona trailer park and it's very david lynchian and it's sort of set up and all these people are there they're misfits they're fugitives they're on the run from themselves or something you know like haunted 
and then there's this sort of uh, supernatural element coming from this vortex. That that is a, it ends up becoming quite a high concept, and I think these these high concept shows um, is what I mean. Look, everyone talks about Breaking Bad as one of the greatest, and I'll, I'll legitimately say it's the greatest TV show ever made. But again, it's not really a high, it's sort of a, it's grounded, you know. And yeah. you can take a sci-fi show, you can take anything, you can take, you know, someone who, as long as it's grounded, as you, you know, we, we'll believe it. I mean, we're prepared to believe anything. We're prepared to believe that a guy can DNA splice dinosaur things and create a theme park of dinosaurs. Yeah. I mean, if if you were like, wait a second, that sounds ridiculous. But if you... <laughs> If it's told in a way that's grounded and you believe the characters and it's all, of course, you're going to go, well, I'm along for this ride. Okay. I know it probably can't happen in real life, but I'm along for this ride. And I think anything, as soon as the sci-fi stuff or the high concept stuff loses um, its groundedness and I think you're right, you've completely lost your audience. I think sometimes this happens in, you know, scary stories or horror movies or whatever where, you know, they all come to the uh, the old house and they're, you know, like, let's split up so we can search the house individually and each get killed off one at a time. And you're just like, wait a minute. Yeah. At that point, <laughs> I don't fulfill- buy it, you know. No, at that point, you're just fulfilling a, a, a tired old structure, I think. You know, it's like... Uh, those, those sort of those sort of movies, I, I think, are becoming less and less. I think I think horror movies are. I oh, look, I don't know. I mean, I and think they're, they're becoming that, a little, you know. yeah, a little bit more sophisticated. But um, but those movies, yeah. I mean, like the eighties. I was I was a horror movie obsessive in the eighties, and every single one of those were like, oh come on, don't go in there. <laughs> like, don't, just just don't do it. And they do it, and they get killed, and then you're like, oh well, yeah. I knew that was going to happen. And then you'd go, okay, I can't wait for the next one because there was a, f- a feeling of familiarity about those movies um, and something within the scares, there was also a safety <laughs> from, I think, from, a, from an audience perspective. You kind of knew how it was going to turn out, but you were prepared to still get scared uh, while you were watching it. You know, it's like people who watch Law and Order, you know, Special Victims Unit and Law and Order, all those shows. Yeah. People are obsessed with those shows. I mean, they're, but they're exactly the same episode week in, week out. It's yeah. always the same structure. You know, by someone dies by 10 past nine, the fake suspect by 20 past nine, no, that person's not the killer. By 20 to 10, oh, this is the person I think it is. They catch him by 10 to 10, there's the, there's the trial and it's all wrapped up. But there's something safe in that, you know. Audiences like that, they're not they can they can sit down, they know what they're gonna get, and they'll go, Okay, cool. That was that took up an hour of my time, I enjoyed it, and um, you know, what's next? Um, but they're not they're not ever gonna be disappointed. Um and I think if that's the sort of stories you wanna tell, that's great. But you know, I prefer to tell stories where I have the potential to disappoint or I have the potential to thrill. You know, it's it's just a gamble you want to take. Yeah, that's interesting. It was it was actually a question I was thinking of asking, and that had to do with formulas. If you felt like, you know, formulas were a help or a hindrance to storytelling, and like in that sense, they're very tied to a specific formula. But people get what they you know expect, and and I think that's a 
pretty good point. You know, to me, I tend to move away from formulas. I don't really like the idea of writing a formulaic story or something like that. But, but in that case, you know, people's expectations are in a certain direction, and that's what's provided for them. Absolutely, and I think there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, clearly not. I mean, Dick Wolf has got about how many of those shows on the air right now? Oh my goodness, I don't um, know. it's. You know, the, the the guy basically, his house is not a house, it's, it's a mint. I mean, he's just got dollar bills being printed, clearly because he's tapped into a formula that absolutely works. The audience knows exactly what they're going to get. They watch it, and they're entertained for that hour. They can do their ironing. They can cook their dinner. They don't have to sit there and go, wait a second, oh, my God, that plot point is going to come in episode three. I've got to go back. <laughs> it's, back, it's sort of background noise, and that's okay. I mean, you know, I've, I've, I've worked as an actor on those shows and, and you know, played, playing the lead guest roles, and the lead guest roles uh, get the juiciest parts to play. Mm-hmm. And that's where the writers actually really enjoy guest roles um, because they get to create a character that's not – has – the guest roles in those shows have more arcs of change than the lead roles over seven seasons, um, because those see, those those characters come in and they solve the crime, and you never you rarely get to see their personal life. You rarely get to go home with them, because the, there's not enough storytelling real estate in the 45 minutes of 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 screen time. You know, not including commercials, obviously. Yeah. To you can't delve into their personal lives. You can't say, oh, Chris Maloney is going through such a hard time in his home life on that show. Oh, the poor guy. I mean, you know, is he going to get this divorce? Oh, is, he, is, is his mum going to live? Uh, you don't have time to invest in that character because he's on, he's on the job going, oh, we need to get from this and interview the, the guest role. Um, but, again, that sort of storytelling is great, and there's obviously – you know, CBS lives on those shows, those procedurals. NBC lives on them. Um, and, you know, people, it's employed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of writers. It's just not for me personally. Right. Um, you know, I much prefer to, to, to go, okay, here's the structure of a pilot. I have 60 pages to play with. I know I've got to have a teaser. I know I've got to have sort of moments of, um, of cliffhangery, but I, I much prefer to live in the, 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 the cable non non um, non advertising space. You know, I don't like writing toward a, a commercial. I'd much prefer to, you know, write toward uh, ten episodes and having no commercials. And at the end of it, people going, "Oh my god, what? Like, when is this next season coming out?" Because mm, yeah. clearly, all the, clearly, these so much stuff has been set up here that is just going to keep me up at night until I see the next season. Well, I think you know there are definitely. I think that's a good point, and it brings up just the idea that there are lots of different types of stories, storytellers, and so on. And, and I think there's a saying that I, I have up in my office. It says, always give readers what they want or something better. And so that's kind of my goal whenever I write a novel. It's like, I want to give people what they want, or if I don't meet the conventions of the genre, I want to give them something better where they're like, man, I never saw that coming, and, and I like the twist. So as long as we're fulfilling what... You know, audiences come to our stories for, I think, and as long as we're entertaining them, that, that's good. Well, that's, I mean, look, at the end of the day, that's uh, that's kind of our job. I mean, the lucky, we, you know, we're, we're, we're lucky enough to live, uh, make a living from 
something that a look if, if you if you're not passionate about writing or directing or acting, then if you're not going to. I mean, there's no point doing it. <laughs> You've yeah. got to live. As my, you know, my, I live, breathe uh, writing and storytelling and creating, and it's just, it's kind of just how I've, I'm, I'm wired in a lot of ways, and, and I think it's fascinating to, you know, get to, we get to, get to dig into worlds, we get to dig into, um, you know, I've got this, this thing I wrote that's being set up at the moment, it's all set in the, the world of the, the, um, the cadaver trade, and. You know, big businesses like Johnson and Johnson, they need, you know, they've got these new surgical equipments that they need neurosurgeons to work on. Um, they want to sell these to big top neurosurgeons, so they want the neurosurgeons to try it out. So they set up a conference room in Vegas, but they need 50 heads. Where do those heads come from? I mean, seriously, it's a most fascinating world of of where these cadaver parts come from. Of course, it's very dark and very, there's a, there's such a razor sharp, razor thin line between, um, you know, legitimacy and illegitimacy. But this is a world that I get to go, wait a second, this is fascinating. There's such a TV show here. How do I jump into it? And I get to meet incredible people like coroners and, and, um, go to crematoriums and it's a bit dark and weird, but at the same time I get to sort of ex- experience characters and I get to experience what their life is like. And these characters fuel story. And then I get to sit in my office and sort of take what I've learned and manipulate it into story. And it's, it's just a, you know, it's a, it's make believe and it's, but it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, and it's fun. Uh, <laughs> it's escapism every day, put it that way. And that's, and that's okay. I remember I was reading that um, Tolkien one time, you know, was talking about how people sort of were derisive toward his stories. They would call it escapist or something. And, and he wrote um, an essay called, I think it's called On Fairy Stories. But he basically says, um, if someone is caught in a prison, why wouldn't they want to escape? There are a lot of prisons in our lives. And there are a lot of things that that we do want naturally to escape from pain and grief and sorrow and shame and guilt and all of these prisons. And, and I think it's totally legitimate to have stories that we say, I'm going to escape from, you know, yep. real life or whatever for a while and I'm going to enter this world. And so, and that's, and that's exactly what we're here to do. I mean, uh, you know, I think it's why the entertainment industry is a, you know, it's a billion dollar. It's a massive industry, yeah. and I, and it, look, of course, there are those companies just want the quick cash grab, and they run their they run the story through a uh, like some sort of oracle of a computer, and it spits out a formula, going, oh yes, if you get uh, Jerry Butler in that lead role, then you'll make it, and regardless of the the um, you know how good the material is. Yeah, I mean, of course, there's companies. It's a business. I mean, it's show business. I mean, it's got business at the end of it. They want to make money. There's no point losing money because then you just you know, it's a, no one's doing it for charity. Um, but at the same time, I think if you take, if you approach this business from not that kind of uh, cynical point of view, yes, we're always going to need escapism, everyone. I mean, you know, I do this for a living and I'm making a good living from it and I, I get to create and I do this. But at the same time, I love sitting down and watching a show that I can sort of go, oh, man. I'm not even thinking about trying to second guess this plot. I just love these characters. I want to be on this journey. I want to see what happens next. I, 
And if, and if it doesn't do that for me, I don't watch anymore. I mean, I don't have the time or the patience to, and I think that's, we are in an absolutely saturated world of, of storytelling platforms. And, you know, even, even if you didn't work for a living and, you know, you could just sit in front of the TV all day, you're still never going to get through the content. I mean, it's where really you've got to really create something that stands out amongst the pack to really kind of grab people because you know what? Oh, 30 minutes in, if you don't have them, all right, enough. I'm going to move on to the next thing in my Netflix queue. You've got to, you know, it's tough. I mean, we have way more, more outlets um, buying story but at the same time, just because you've got more places, you've you've also got more places to lose people as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that's that's equally as scary as it is um, the challenge that we need to continually up our game and and sort of and, and rise to that challenge that the audiences have more to watch. The audiences are smarter. They we've got to we've got to keep up with them in a way and not say, hey, come and keep up with us. Yeah, you know, um, I, I've sometimes told people, you know, 10, 20, even, even five years ago, there were, there were nowhere near the amount of uh, distractions that we have, you know, today, whether it's social media or Twitter um, or, you know, a, a zillion different video games that people can play. Now virtual reality is starting to emerge as another distraction and then movies and television shows and books and I mean, 20 years ago, there was nothing like it is today. We have to be better storytellers than they were. We have to be much better storytellers to grab our audiences, right? Absolutely. And keep their attention. Because, um, Stephen, what we're competing with now is 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 a short attention spans, no matter what. Yeah. I mean, we're not we're no longer uh, we're no longer being distracted by uh, you know, like if someone sits down to watch something, we're not. We're not just distracted by the maybe the house phone will ring, <laughs> and, and then go, oh god, I'm going to have to come back and rewind this or whatever. Now we're just like we know, without a doubt, that whatever we've got on a, that they're sitting and watching at home, you know that they're checking their Instagram, you know they're they're like updating their Facebook status, you know yeah. they're checking their email, you know that there's not. You literally know that because you know what? You're kind of doing it yourself. I mean, I find myself sometimes sitting down and I'm engaged. Yeah. I'm really enjoying watching. I'm watching this thing on, um, again, I don't really, it's, it's hard to engage me, but I'm watching this thing on Netflix. It's this Spanish show called Money Heist. Terrible English version title. Um, but it's, it's this really engaging sort of heist movie over 10 episodes. Apparently it's two seasons where they, it's the same heist. You follow the hostages. You follow the criminals who are who are holding up the Spanish men. You follow the negotiator, and you go home with her, and you see her home life. And it's this absolutely great boiling pot of characters over the length of a a twenty day siege. It's 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 absolutely riveting. But you know what? I still find time to check my email, or I still find time <laughs> to to uh, go. Oh, oh yeah, that's a like that. I like that photo where wherever you are. And yeah. I have to go, wait a second, don't be the people I'm trying to compete against in my, in my own job. I'm like, wait a second, when did I become this hypocrite? So I know that people are, are doing this because sometimes I do it myself. Yeah. So, you know, you've got you've to you've up your game constantly and you've got you've to know where your story is going. You've got to really go, okay, 
I want, I don't want, I've got to tell my story in a way that I don't, that audiences don't have time to, to post about their, their amazing dinner that they just had um, on Instagram. <laughs> you know, I, I want them to go, oh, God, I want to, I just made the most amazing baked salmon. Oh, I'd love to post this, but you know what? I'm going to do it after the show because I'm really intrigued. There you so go. I guess, that, I guess that's what we're trying to compete against is people posting about their dinner. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so earlier when you were talking about your writing process and you mentioned that you don't outline, I know um, on the on the show sometimes pe- people are outliners and sometimes they're more organic, like I, I'm, I'm in your camp, more organic. How... How do you listen to the characters when when you're writing? I mean, you sit down and you you have these characters in mind, and you're sort of going where they take you. What are the steps that you do? Because I know a lot of people say, "How does that even work?" You know, if he's not calling the shots and the characters are, yeah, it's, it's, it's funny. a bit mysterious for me. But yeah, it is one of those things where there's a little bit of false. I don't know whether it's false modesty or false bravado in saying that I don't outline what I. I think my process is um, I've got the idea and I know that that idea can fill a TV show. Yeah. So I'm going, okay, this is going to be a pilot. Or I know oh, this is such an open and shut uh, story. Okay, that's going to be a feature. So, again, I I will never, ever sort of even think about an idea until I just have that opening scene. And I've, I've written the opening scene, the, the, like in a film, if it's four pages or if it's a teaser in a pilot around the same amount of time. I've often written that and then I can walk away for like six months and go, okay, now I've got to figure out the rest. So what I'm not do, when, I, when I say I don't outline, it doesn't mean I'm not, it's not percolating and percolating. And I might be working oh, sure, on something yeah. else. I might be going off and doing something else. That idea is still percolating, and I've got a little, um, you know, I've got a little notes open on my phone, and I, and I have a great line of dialogue, or a great moment, or a great character scene, or a great this, and I go, oh, I'll pop it in. I'll do a little shorthand of what that is, that I know I'll remember it later on. So by the time I do go, ah, it's like my, it's like my the, the, the screenplay or the pilot goes, it's time. It's like it literally reaches out of the computer or from the ground, like in a horror movie, like a hand coming up and <laughs> grabs me and goes, it's, it's, it's time. So when I do sit down and go and start to write, I can punch it out in, like, I, I've written pilots in three days. I've written features in a week wow. um, because it just comes out. Yeah. And it's all there. And often I can go back and... Of course, writing is about rewriting. I mean, they're often what they, you know, you call vomit passes. You're kind of just vomiting it onto the page. It's pretty gross, but that's kind of the best way to describe describe it. But the good thing is because it's been percolating and percolating and you've been listening to these characters and you've been living with them in some way and you've been kind of communing with them in a, in a sort of a not, you know, not in that artsy-fartsy way, like, but you've kind of been communing with them in a, oh, yeah, I, I reckon this character would do that. Or, oh, yeah, this is where I can put them after that happens. By the time I, you know, sit down to write, because I don't like sitting down at the computer for too long. Um, I like to get in and it's like I want to get it out and I want to lock myself up if it means not coming out of my little hole for five days. I'd much prefer to sit in my you know, my cave for five days, get it out and then see the air again as opposed to sitting there for 
six weeks and going, okay, I'm still on Act One. Um, because I'd prefer to rewrite <laughs> something. <laughs> I'd prefer to rewrite something okay than sit and try and, in my first pass, write the end product. Um, and I, you know, I've only ever written, rewritten my things sort of two or three times because often that vomit pass is has every element. It just needs fine tuning, and it, it has the, the dialogue scenes go on too long. You know, the characters are saying too much. What do you, you know, there's not enough subtext. You're spelling it all out a bit too much. You're not being as clever as you could be. Um, that's all comes in the rewriting stage. But in some ways, my outlining is happening in my head and on my little notes page for, you know, for a while before I actually sit down. You know, I don't, I don't have a, like a document saying beat one, beat two, beat three, beat right. four. It's not, it's not that. But um, because I like to, again, you know, if you know how to connect the dots and the audience will, will, will help, will be able to connect the dots before, before you or with you. So I like yeah, to I be able to go, oh, where does this character go? And then you go, oh, my God, that's, does this work? Yes, because it's true to the character. Sure. And you go, if that's, wait a second, if that's true to the character, that's a moment I could never have thought about. And if I can make that work, then I'm really onto something here. Yeah, I was just thinking that um, you bring up a good point, and that is this idea of incubation where you play with an idea, maybe set it aside, and I don't know what it is. Our subconscious or something works on it, and you come back to it. But that's one of the you know, keys to the creative process that I think a lot of people try to shortcut because they want to punch their story out or get it out there to the world, whether it's a screenplay or or, or a novel or whatever. And, uh, and I think that the you know the time that we take that we step away often gives us gives us uh, more juice to tell the story in a sharp yeah it, it's funny you do more re, you do more writing uh, not at your computer I, I find I do more writing not at my computer <laughs> than I do literally at it and there's those great stories you hear about the Coen brothers it's like they just do they sleep a lot I mean these are these are my favorite filmmakers and my favorite screenwriters in a lot of ways, and they they spend a lot of their time sleeping. They just sort of go, oh, just you know what? I'm just going to need a nap. And it's funny. It's like, you know, my my girlfriend, uh, she's 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 now she sleeps with you know earplugs. We both do because it's like we like she's an, she's an actress and she's she, you know we like our own little cocoon. You know, for me, earplugs yeah. helps me me not think. It's, you know, we live in a very quiet place in LA and it's, we don't really have much outside noise or we just did move from Hollywood where there is a chopper over your head every day. But it's like a cocoon. It sort of it incubates you so you can't think too much. But when I lie down, it's almost like, oh, God. okay, great. Here it comes. That's when all the great ideas come. You're lying there and now you're like, oh, how can I turn on this light without waking her up and, and scribble <laughs> all these, this amazing scene and dialogue comes to me when I'm lying down. And then I'm like, oh, okay. and then I lie there and I'm like, don't forget this dialogue. Don't forget this dialogue. Don't forget it. Now it's like three in the morning. I'm trying not to forget this amazing scene that I've just written lying down in my head, but you end up getting up, <laughs> writing it down, going to your computer, writing it. Then you go back. There's an hour's sleep, but look, at least you've got this amazing scene that you couldn't get when you were sitting at your computer trying to make it happen. And um, 
that's the that's the incredible joyful part of this process, I think, and the really frustrating part. Because when you when you when you want to solve all your issues, it's when you don't want them to be solved. It's when you're trying to sleep. I went through that last night. I was up at two thirty <laughs> with an idea, and I have a friend who's novelist. He said, "No, I've never had an idea wake me up in the middle of the night." And I'm like, "I wouldn't know what that's like." Because <laughs> I have Good for him. Ideas. I mean, that's amazing. Yeah, right? I, I don't know. I'm... I mean. So, well, this is great. This has been a good conversation. I've really enjoyed just uh, sort of how down-to-earth you are about some of these ideas, but, um, you know, not pretentious about it, but um, but really insightful. Are are there any thoughts that you want to share closing up? Let's say someone is writing a screenplay or writing a story. Any any, um, kind of closing advice that you would give to them? Um, Oh, God, I mean, look... I would say at this point, you know, because I'm working on a lot of, I'm working on um, this, you know, uh, look, television right now is where it's at. Yes, there's more, there's more outlets, there's more scope to tell great character-driven story. Um, and I have had, look, uh, some really nice success in this last year of, of selling, you know, s- some shows, but. The, the the thing is, what my advice, especially in that sort of TV world, is just because you've got an amazing pilot, uh, kind of doesn't mean you've got an amazing show. <laughs> so my 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 thing is like I've sold pilots, and then they've got you know then you you pitched out the season, and then people then want to know okay what happens in how. You're dealing with companies that are investing a lot of money, millions and millions yeah. and millions and millions of dollars in your, your – they don't want something that is going to get cancelled after one season. They want something that can go for five seasons minimum. So in some unorganic way, we're meant to sort of know what happens in 50 episodes. Or if you don't know, of course, you're not meant to know the specifics of that. We're not meant to yeah. go, well – in episode forty nine, uh, you know, <laughs> Judy, 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 and Bob are going to, you know, land on Mars. No, we don't have to know that stuff. But you have to sort of, in broad strokes, know that your story, or at least your story engine, as they call it in television, your motor, characters are going to organically change over the course of the season. But your motor of how what is propelling story needs to sustain that five seasons minimum. Yeah. So I guess my advice would be, yes, pilots need to be absolutely gripping. You need to sort of dump so much in there in such a a, a well-structured way that people go, ah, oh, what happens next? I want to watch this show. I want to watch episode two. But you, what you need to know when you're taking a show out is not only know what happens in your pilot and a very detailed knowledge of what happens in season one. Now I always sort of in my Bible, I have, here's what happens in episode two, three, four, five, six to 10. And yes, that is open to change because you're going to have a writer's room and everyone's going to come up with a better idea. But at least they know, well, if I invest in this, I know I'm going to get a good season one out of it. But I guess I'm, it's a long way of saying my, <laughs> my advice would be, just know that you can sustain the show for five seasons. Know, have that magic trick up your sleeve that you can go, I'm, I know how to deliver on the, this promise that I'm setting up in this premise 
in episode five. I know that this character in season four is at the end of season three, they're going to be in jail. At season four, they get out. And because they've been away for so long, they need to do this because they've lost all this time. So it's knowing that you can maintain <laughs> the story and convince yeah. them and not go, hey, but hey, look, at, check out my amazing pilot. Don't you love it? Don't you want to <laughs> see that show? It's like, yeah, I want to see that show. I want to see that pilot. But tell me, tell me, convince me I want to see the whole show. Yeah. Convince me I'm, I'm going to be still watching this at um, episode 50 at the end of season five. And I think, I guess that's my thing is like, we get excited. We want to get this amazing pilot to our agents and my agents read these pilots and go, holy shit, where did this come from? This is amazing. Wow. Well, like this, com- this production company is looking for that. We reckon we could take this there, there, there. And you get so excited with them. It's like, yes, yes. And then you go there and you have these meetings and then just don't sell them a false bag of goods, basically. <laughs> you know, you, you, you want to go, I've got it all. Just, you know what? I'm not going to let you down, but sometimes, you know, you, you don't have that magic trick up your sleeve and, and because you've just sort of been so excited by the, the setup that, but the setup's important, but the payoff is, is equally so. Yeah. And it isn't just, it isn't just one idea. It's execution in the long run. And so have your ducks in a row, you know, as you, as you pull. And it's all, and look, it's all, it's all, it's all right to change. You know, these places yeah. where they, they have writers rooms of 10 people, that's a lot of great brains. You know, these, there's ten brains working on 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 a show. That's 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 a lot of uh, that's a lot of bandwidth for for you know that's that's the greatest thing about Vince Gilligan was he always he knew sort of where he was going, but he loved to write himself into a corner. But he always had that magic trick up his sleeve. You know, he yeah. knew that he knew that that's my endpoint, and I've got my arc. I've got my arc. No matter what happens in between. I can zig, I can zag, I can go back, I can go forward, I can go sideways, I can go upside down, but I know that it'll all, all lines will lead to this point. And that sounds really easy, but sometimes in taking out a show, it's not as, it's not as difficult, it's not as easy as it sounds, you know, because God, that's a lot of story to maintain. That's a lot of, that's a, that's a lot to tell, you know? So, I guess that's my very long-winded way of saying, have it, ha, don't don't fake it, <laughs> don't don't fake it. Have it have it up your sleeve, and then then you then you'll be even more impressive. <laughs> Sounds good. Sounds good. So, Paul, thanks for um, you know joining us. And um, where can people connect my with pleasure. you online? You know, is there a website where we can sort of follow your career or see what next projects you have coming out? Uh, look, I've got it. I've got because I've got all this stuff going on. I have it. I do have a website in development at the moment, so I don't have it right now. Yeah. And again, you know, being, so I'm not, a, I'm not really ever really on the Twitters or any of those sort of things because I try not to get distracted, uh, especially by this environment and this political environment in America we're in. I don't <laughs> want to get distracted, so I try to, I try to kind of keep away from that. But uh, it's, uh, you know, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll keep you up to date as a uh, yeah. No, that sounds good to, 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 to come forward and come out. And we encourage uh, all of our listeners to check out the shows that you've been on and that you've done and the movies that you're, you're working on these days. And, and um, if you want more information about my books, and, um, you can go to stephenjames.net or 
thestoryblender.com to listen to more shows and broadcasts. Also, a special thanks goes out to Suspense Radio for hosting us over the last two years. We really appreciate all of their support. So to everyone who's listened, my thanks goes out. And as I like to say, always remember, the art of the story is all in the blend. We'll see you next time.